As major commercial space companies set their eyes on futuristic fuel types such as methane or even full solar electric propulsion, researchers at Ball Aerospace have been developing the next generation of hypergolic fuels that are safer to handle and use. Today, we're talking about green propellant infusion mission. You're listening to SpexCast. Welcome to SpexCast, a podcast about the science and technology of space exploration. My name is Phil, and I'll be your host today alongside TJ. Hello. And Augie. Hello. We are a group of students and alumni belonging to a student faculty research group called RIT Space Exploration, aka SPECS, at the Rochester Institute of Technology. On this podcast, we delve into the technologies that make space exploration possible. You can learn more about SPECS and SpexCast at our website, specs.rit.edu. Today we're talking about the green propellant infusion mission and the future of hypergolic fuels and rocket motors in space. Please let us know what topics you would like us to discuss in the future by sending us a tweet at RITSpecs, an email at specscast at gmail.com. Feedback is awesome and helps us make a better show for all of you. In fact, this episode was requested by a listener a couple months ago named Caleb. So uh, Caleb, this one's for you. So um, to get started, let's kind of explain what hypergolic fuels are. Um, in space, or even when rockets were first being developed, um, the fuel of choice was this, it's basically super toxic, super dangerous fuel, but it explodes really well. Um, and a hypergol is just, it, it's a type of fuel where you either mix it with another fuel or with a catalyst, and without a spark or anything, it will just ignite and explode. Uh, So this works out really well for things like uh, reaction control thrusters. You can just store it in a tank and spit it out, and it'll ignite when it passes over the catalyst and provide a little bit of thrust to adjust your uh, capsule. Um, But also it's used on satellites and things to, um, you know, provide little bits of thrust. the primary one in use now is called hydrazine. It's N2H4. N2H4. So that's what's the nitrogen uh, tetrahydro hydroxide tetrahydrodinitrogen. It's a mouthful. Great to Wikipedia. <laughs> hydrazine. <laughs> yeah. You only need like two parts per billion or something to kill you. Like that's how dangerous it is and people have to use full body clean suits like the full hazmat suits with the mask and like respirator and stuff um which can make working with these things and building satellites really annoying and really dangerous uh if you have to work on the propulsion system and suit up every time and maybe die you know yes and human handling of hydrazine is extremely uh not recommended unless you have complete um you know safety equipment and safety suits uh, this was demonstrated uh, in popular media with The Martian. Um, if, for those of you who've seen the movie you, or read the book, you might remember that Mark Watney has a water generator uh, in his greenhouse, and he's using hydrogen propellants that were in the, the lander uh, for the return flight. Uh, and by com- uh, reacting hydrazine with the catalyst at a low energy, uh, it was generating water. Uh, but it was very... Uh, Again, hydrogen is very reactive, and he 
mixed up the uh, chemical balance there and resulted in a fireball on screen. Uh, so that's just one of the many ways hydrogen can uh, be very, very dangerous. It, but like as dangerous as it is, um, one of the questions that kind of arises is, well, why not use something else? Uh, but in terms of space, um, it's super, super awesome. So you can have these different types of hypergolic fuels that you keep in separate tanks, it's fine. You keep them in space, totally fine. You don't need to ignite them, you don't need, because that's another point of failure. Um, and when they react, they're super reactive, so it's a great way to store chemical energy. Um, so it's not really trivial, you can't, like it's worth the hazards to get people putting on these hazmat suits to fill up the rocket or the spacecraft. Um, so speaking of rockets and spacecraft, what type of vehicles actually use hypergolic fuels that we can look at today? Yeah, so hypergolic fuels, as Phil mentioned, are incredibly useful. Uh, and they are in almost every spacecraft flying today that has some kind of propulsion system. Now, there are some legacy launch vehicles that use bipropellant uh, hypergolic fuels. Uh, but we're going to be kind of focusing on spacecraft in particular. Um, now, two very famous uh, applications of hypergolics were during the Apollo program. The Apollo service module and the lunar excursion module both had hypergolic uh, engine systems because, again, they were spending three days to the moon and three days back, where if you have a liquid hydrogen and liquid oxygen system, you're going to suffer extreme boil-off from both of, those, both of those propellants. And so you're actually going to be running out of fuel on your way and on your way back from the destination. So that was one part of the selection process. The other is that hypergolics, by their nature, are very reliable, where you can take two chemicals with a very simple valve system and force them into a combustion chamber and be guaranteed that they would ignite. If you look at something like the space shuttle with the RS-25s with liquid hydrogen liquid oxygen, they have massive sparkers on the launch pad that shower the engine bell with sparks to ensure a uh, ignition, right? And thousands of hours of testing, not only for those engines, but for any other, you know, bipropellant non-hypergolic engine like Carolox, they spend a lot of time testing the ignition sequence so that their igniter fluid or ignition source reacts with the fuel at the exact right time so that the engine doesn't hard start where there's too much fuel and it all combusts at once. Hypergolics don't have that issue because as soon as those what as soon as that one fuel mixes with the catalyst or those two fuels mix together, they immediately combust. So there's no time for extra fuel to build up in the thrust chamber and then catastrophically explode. So the real star of this episode is a new type of uh, monopropellant or hypergolic propellant developed by Ball Aerospace. AF-M315E. What a great name. Also, it's utilizing the Aerojet's patent-pending LCH-240 high-temperature long-life catalyst. This propellant is intended to be, you know, the same performance as hydrazine in space but be able to be worked with on the ground by technicians and stuff in a shirt sleeve environment. So you wouldn't need a hazmat suit. You wouldn't need, um, you know, a respirator. Um, and it would be safe to work with, you know, in just like any other part of a spacecraft. You have to be really careful. It's probably going to be in a clean room, but 
you don't need to be it, it won't be super super dangerous but their intent is to achieve the same performance as something like hydrazine now one of the interesting things with af-m315e from here to known as green propellant um, is that in the process of coming up with something that's safer than hydrazine they actually able to find stuff that's more performant than hydrazine so uh, in the gpim official project paper on AIAA, which we'll link in the show notes, uh, they actually have done some analysis of how it compares to traditional monopropellant hydrazine. Uh, and that is, it has a higher ISP, which is a measure of its efficiency. Uh, it's about 12% uh, higher, uh, 257 seconds versus 235 seconds. Now, a 12% increase doesn't seem like a lot, but when you're dealing with rockets, that 12% increase in efficiency in your engines actually has a logarithmic effect across your whole vehicle design. And another important thing is that it's 45% more dense than hydrazine. It's 1.47 grams per cubic centimeter versus one gram per cubic centimeter. That means you can have smaller tanks for the same amount of fuel. Uh, and then with that higher performance, you need less fuel. So those tanks are even smaller. And that means that your vehicle's uh, dry mass is greatly reduced. Uh, and that means it's wet mass to have the same amount of delta V. That ratio uh, is better for the designers. And these propulsion systems are built um, to have the same amount of force as traditional, you know, commonly used hydrazine thrusters. There's um, one thruster that's one newton and another one that is 22 newtons. Um, so those are standard sizes. So in theory, this system could, um, like as a system, replace the hydrazine propulsion and cut down on risks and you know be safer to work with, but also those increases mm -hmm. in performance. Yeah, the third benefit that TJ didn't mention was that it actually has a lower freezing point than hydrazine. So the spacecraft uh, doesn't need to exert as much power in order to maintain its temperature so that the fuel doesn't freeze. Mm -hmm. And that's super important when you're talking about long duration missions, right? Where say if you're sending a probe, you know, Juno is orbiting Jupiter now, it has a hydrazine based propulsion system. Uh, it has to power and heat all its fuel lines to make sure there's no those freezing issues. If it was using green propellant, it would have been able to have, say, smaller solar panels, or it could have had more power for other scientific instruments uh, during the journey. Yeah, exactly. Is there more technical information that we can find about AFM315E? There's a little bit in the paper. Um, from my understanding is that it's an ionic liquid. Um, so it's a little bit different than hydrazine. And the key sticking point of like why haven't we been using this material since the 1950s is that it's you know not naturally a monopropellant. That's why it's green and safe to use. Um, so like when you have it in an open container, like it doesn't spontaneously react. Um, and with the catalyst, the special catalyst Ball Aerospace has developed or Aerojet Rocket 9 has developed, uh, it has to be heated to a very, very high temperature. And so when we were originally looking into this uh, technology a couple of years ago, right, uh, they weren't able to scale it up. And there's also the issue where your catalyst is being used up during the lifetime of the thruster. And so with this mission, they were able to solve both of those in being able to develop a thruster with a catalyst that 
all has to be preheated to a high temperature, is not so hot as to be unreasonable for a spacecraft, and also doesn't suffer the corrosion problems at the same rate, so that it can be used reliably over a long period of time. So it's actually a drop-in replacement for a hydrogen thruster, so that a you know satellite designer doesn't have to think, oh, if I put in you know a green uh, attitude control thruster, I only have half the lifespan compared to a hydrogen thruster, and then I have to work around that restriction. Uh, it's designed to be a drop-in replacement for almost all applications. This episode isn't meant to be a commercial for this. Like, what are what are some risks or you know drawbacks to using green propellant? So there's actually a few downsides. Uh, obviously, this is a more technologically intensive uh, fuel type. Um, and so the thrusters, while there's a very simple design of this, you know, pressurized fuel going through valves into combustion chambers, um, because you have that high temperature catalyst, you have an issue of a high temperature electric, th- thermal electric heat source on your spacecraft that is by necessity attached to your spacecraft. Um, and your thermal management on a satellite is incredibly important. And so if you have solar radiation inputting and then you put, you know, a thousand plus degree heat source on a corner or say four thousand degree heat sources, um, you run the risk of overheating. And so, you know, in their design, they've worked out ways to kind of isolate the thruster and minimize that. But that's still, uh, you know, a consideration. Also, uh, this propellant is slightly acidic uh, compared to hydrazine so that, um, it can actually dissolve the containers that it's been in. Um, but the team at Ball Airspace has, has said that they've qualified it with tanks. Uh, and they've actually, you know, whatever corrosion they've seen has been minimal and it will fit in with whatever you know, existing materials and technologies are used. But there's also an issue of all of the seals that go into these valves have to be changed. Um, so this mission's like one of the primary risks and primary like interesting points is those non-metallic seals as part of those valves are being tested. So like they've chosen the material they think uh, will stand up, uh, but now it's up to them to actually build a valve, fly it in space, and prove it in a space environment. The other the other big aspect about um, about it is hy- hydrogen is out there. It's been in use for for decades, and there's a, a large infrastructure built around it. With this new, uh, basically, formulation, this catalyst that Aerojet Rocketdyne developed, um, there uh, there's patent pending on it, which means there's probably a lot of um, like uh, IP related like sales they want to make, and they could make a pretty penny if it's successful. So it's not a bad thing, but I think that's going to be a big aspect when companies try and consider, you know, whether or not they want to use green propellant on their satellite. They're going to have to look at like the existing infrastructure versus the cost that they'll have to spend with Aerojet Rocketdyne's new system. One thing to keep in mind is that this has been a 20-year development cycle. So they've originally had this idea to use these class of liquids, uh, and they've been testing, you know, prototypes for, you know, over two decades at this point. And so the fact that we're here and we have the thrusters and you know, everything just seems to work and we just have to prove that it works. Uh, we can't forget that there's been two decades of very intensive scientific research to get to this point on the ground. One thing, one question I have is whether this technology will be able to be scaled 
Um, so they have like a one newton thruster, a 22 newton thruster, uh, but things like, you know, SpaceX's Draco engines have 200 newtons, don't they? Some mm -hmm. like order of magnitude larger than that. Um, I wonder if this green propellant system will be scaled up in the future to larger uh, propulsion systems, maybe even, you know, um, being the primary source of thrust for a satellite that would want to go to the moon or something. So it's, it's interesting. So this is a monopropellant hypergolic thruster, uh, something like the Super Dracos on a Dragon or large hypergolic boosters are bipropellant. So you get a higher ISP and you can have much higher thrust because you have a more energetic reaction. Uh, but monopropellant thrusters are usually used for station keeping, orient attitude control and station keeping. And there's actually a really interesting graph. And if you look at the thrusters from one Newton all the way to 50 Newton, the most common types are in the one Newton class and the 20 Newton class. And so they're like, okay, if we can demonstrate, design, demonstrate, and fly these types of thrusters, we cover more than 75% of the actual applications for these for attitude control. I and see. so uh, unfortunately, this technology is probably not going to be able to be used, say, if we had a, a new hypergolic service model for Orion or Dragon or Starliner. Um, it works great for satellites for attitude control or even those crafts their own attitude, attitude control. Well, I mean, I guess that makes sense. You're not going to have a one-size-fits-all mm -hmm. solution, and this seems to work pretty well for what it was designed for, which is that range, that, that mission um, aspect, I guess. What's the next test for this? Like, what, what will this be used on? So the Green Propellant Infusion mission specifically is a small satellite demonstrator that tests this new uh, propellant AF-M315E, um, and it also tests those two thrusters called the GR, so green rocket, uh, GR1, which is one newton, and GR22. Uh, and that's built, it's basically a swap-in uh, swap uh, hydrogen system. So it's using basically the same tanks, uh, replacing the hydrazine rocket motor specifically, um, and they're actually able to use a lot of the same components. Again, they're switching some of the materials in the thruster. Even the thruster, like, overall design is relatively the same. They're actually just swapping out materials to make them rated for this propellant. Uh, and that's going to be launching on the second Falcon Heavy launch, uh, the Space Test Mission 2 uh, by the Air Force. Um, so that's most likely going to be uh, the first half of 2018. Um, and that will be a, it's planned to be like a multi-month mission uh, to test two main things. Uh, if you actually look at a picture or a model of the satellite, there's the four one Newton thrusters on each corner, and they're all angled 45 degrees. And that's to allow them to create torques on the satellite. So that lets them actually test attitude control using all four. Um, and then there's the 22 Newton thrusters actually in the middle. And so that lets them do specific maneuvers so they can raise the orbit lower the orbit do a plane change things like that and with that testing profile they can basically cover almost all of the use cases for a satellite hydrazine maneuvering system um, and then 
have flight flight proven hardware for future missions, whether they be commercial satellites or even NASA's own projects. I feel bad for these guys because it's the second flight of Falcon Heavy. And this paper we're citing was written in July 2013. So four years ago, and they've still been waiting. Yeah, they were expecting and planning on it being launched in, in 2015. But this is a small set, so does that mean it's CubeSat form factor or not quite that small? No, it's it's a little bit larger. Uh, CubeSats are nano satellites. Um, I don't have a specific like mass number, um, but it's... You know, rather large, probably like desktop sized, uh, if I'm looking at the renderings correctly. Um, so it's, you know, it's a big size satellite. Um, but again, uh, Space Test Mission 2 has over a dozen satellites of different, a lot of these technology demonstrator missions all bundled together to be uh, one main payload. So is the first STP-2 or STP-1 mission going to be the the maiden launch of Falcon Heavy, or is that a different mission? I believe that has been on a different rocket. Uh, The first mission for Falcon Heavy is obviously the demo flight. So that's a SpaceX payload, Um, whether that's nothing, whether that's a piece of metal, or whether that's some kind of scientific or engineering experiment, we don't know. Um, But SCP... Which is completely unpaid. Exactly. Right? Uh, this will be the first paying payload for Falcon Heavy from SpaceX, and you know it's been a long time coming, right? You know this paper was mm-hmm. written uh, years and years ago, uh, and they were expecting to fly in Falcon Heavy relatively soon after that, but it's you know encountered a lot of delays and ch- a lot of major changes, especially to the performance uh, since then. Is this what uh, LightSail is supposed to fly on as well from Planetary Society? I know, I know that was scheduled to fly on Falcon Heavy as well a couple years ago on the first the first flight. I don't know. Let's ask. Or, yeah. So they did. They basically did um, LightSail One, which is a small set that I uh, backed on Kickstarter, and then they um, so in May of 2015 they they flew LightSail One on an Atlas V rocket, and then they were fundraising for LightSail Two, which is supposed to fly on the first um, Falcon Heavy flight. So I imagine that's probably this one as well. And they're just kind of lumping all of these small sets together. So LightSail is a secondary payload. GPIM is a secondary payload. Uh, two, uh, there's three other nanosats or small sats that I don't know what they are. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's also one giant satellite. Um, there's uh, the ISAT, Innovative Space-Based Radar Antenna Technology Flight Demonstrator, which is over 5,000 kilograms. So GPIM wow. is a, a small uh, hitchhiker compared to the main payload for STP-2. Yeah, I, I am very curious what other missions uh, green propellant is going to be used on. So once they demonstrate the technological readiness of this new propellant, um, are there other companies or, or satellite manufacturers that are already looking at using something like this? From what we've been able to research, there's been no like confirmed like, hey, we're next up to use GPIM. Um, however, this mission is designed to prove out the technology and be basically a drop-in for other missions, right? Um, so actually in their paper, they talk about a lot of potential applications, um, specifically with regards to... Uh, NASA's previous missions. So something like the Curiosity rover uh, that had a 
uh, hypergolic landing system as part of the sky crane right if they had scaled up gpim because it has higher isp and it has higher uh, density they were able to they that would have been able to reduce the amount of fuel and would have let them have a smaller spacecraft to launch or to have a larger rover right um, and also for something like James Webb, if they swapped the hydrazine systems on there for GPIM without changing the propellant tanks because they're more efficient and more dense, they could have a much longer lifetime without dramatically changing the design. You're just swapping out these basically com common thrusters uh, that have the same thrust and the same uh, general dimensions. Yeah, but I mean, swapping something even like a valve would, would be that's a lot for a satellite. When you look at something like James Webb, which its development's been going on for, for over a couple decades now, I think. And uh, it's, it's too late for something like that, but it is a great example, I, I guess, of something where it could be used. Mm -hmm. No, it's, it's definitely a case of once GPIM flies and if they get good data, then uh, satellites in progress, not obviously something that's you know been built, but things that are in the design stage, right. they can make that trade off with relatively little risk because you're having something that is demonstrably safer. There's also performance benefits to that. So it makes it a very compelling option when you're still in the planning phase of a mission to swap to this if it performs as advertised. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the key phrase there at the end, if it, if it outperforms Hydrazine, I think it'll be a really good competitor in trade studies for, for new satellites and stuff. Um, what you know really intrigues me is that shirt sleeve environment safety um so with specs and uh with some of my um undergraduate and graduate research projects i wanted to do propulsion and it's like these systems typically use hydrazine <laughs> and you can't have hydrazine on a university campus so maybe if you know green propellant is proven to be shirt sleeve environment safe um maybe mm -hmm. students could start developing monopropellant um, engines and stuff like that. It'd still probably be a nightmare for uh, environmental health and safety, but um, you know it, it could be an alternative to uh, hydrazine because I know I know solid fuels. Like I've seen videos of students mixing their own solid rocket fuels, you know, in buckets. Uh, so it can't be that much different. I'm just curious, I guess, what they will charge for it. You know, if they'll if they'll take the fact they'll leverage the fact that it's a lot easier to get regulatory approval like that that's great for universities and stuff like that but they're also going to use that as justification to charge a lot more for that because it currently takes a ton of resources to handle hydrazine safely True. now but in the end if it all works out it's you know even if they charge the same amount coupled with all of the costs of handling hydrazine it'll all balance out in, the yeah, in the in their paper they try to compare the costs uh, to hydrazine and they actually had one of the NASA administrators comment that uh, a typical NASA mission, again, you know, depending on the size and scope, a typical NASA mission costs $135,000 to fill the satellite up with hydrazine. So that's the cost of fuel plus it's the cost of all the extra measures to put in. Handling, handling. it and the safety. Uh, and they say that it would cost a fraction of that, right? Um, so you, you might be looking at something that costs more per liter uh, compared to hydrazine, but because it's so much easier to handle, uh, in the end, it would be cheaper for you know, NASA and other commercial companies to implement.
let's talk about kind of the let's speculate a little bit on the future of propulsion systems for uh, commercial space. So, hypergolic fuel like hydrazine has been you know a mainstay for station keeping, attitude control, um, and all its applications. If green propellant is a drop-in replacement, um, you know what's what's that mean for hypergolics versus full electric propulsion for commercial space systems? So we we talked about the immediate advantages of switching to this green propellant if you're based on hydrazine, right? You know, better performance uh, in general. However, there's been this trend uh, of moving to full electric or at least partial electric for commercial satellites at least. Uh, Boeing uh, with their 702 satellite bus is a fully electric satellite bus. So that does all of its station keeping and orbit raising with electric thrusters. And those can use a much smaller volume of fuel that's a much, much higher efficiency. Um, and that means they can completely eliminate hydrazine. There's no handling risk there. They can switch to xenon, which is in general much safer. Uh, and also you get much longer life for the same amount of mass. Or you can make this satellite much smaller and say launch on a smaller rocket that's cheaper. Um, and those are getting more and more popular. Right, with a lot of you know, Boeing building more and more of these and other satellite builders incorporating more of this more technology. And so, you know, you have that innovation on the electric uh, space uh, coming in, but you also have the hypergolics industry innovating with this. And so it remains it's you know, it's really gonna depend on the application and a lot of the external factors of which way you go. Uh, when you're choosing a, a fuel. On the other side, with ITS, uh, we have ITS and we have New Shepard as the next generation large launch vehicles. Uh, and ITS is doing a full methane architecture. And because it's so big, they'll have methane and liquid oxygen you know, station keeping thrusters um, or even just coal gas thrusters and not have any hydrazine at all in the system. And you know, that has a lot of challenges that hypergolics don't have, where you have to store um, cryogenic propellants over long periods, months and years. Um, and so, you know, SpaceX and other companies are seeming to take on that challenge. Um, and, you know, that, again, is an engineering trade-off uh, between those. And, then, you know, the hypergolics have a lot of reliability advantages uh, compared to cryogenic fuels. Yeah, but like think uh, systems like ACES um, are built upon the idea of using cryogenic uh, propellant. And I guess some of the, the trade-offs there, like you said, um, would be more thrust. You know, you can have bigger engines. Um, as we mentioned before, monopropellant and bipropellant don't necessarily scale to be, um, you know, a giant rocket's primary propulsion system. So uh, it's that trade-off between keeping your fuel cold and in the proper state, um, having an ignition um, source and all this other stuff. Uh, but it might be a necessity if you want a bigger engine than something hypergolic could uh, feasibly provide. Yeah, there's a ton of advantages to going with more energetic propellants uh, that aren't hypergolics. Uh, 
But again, you know, that, that remains to be seen. Uh, I, you know, the future, you know, Apollo was a, after Saturn was, the last stage of Saturn was a fully hyperthalic system. Um, we might not see that for at least manned exploration anymore. Even the space shuttle had a hypergolic orbital insertion stage in a sense. Um, and so, you know, if the major next generation manned flight systems completely disregard hypergolics, then what is the, what is the future there uh, for those like high power, high performance systems? Uh, so it's really a really interesting trade-off. I just wish we didn't have to wait until Falcon Heavy flies to, to really see this work, see this in action. But Yeah, it's one of those things where it's like, you know, they spent two whole decades trying thousands of different variations before coming up with a combination of catalyst and fuel. And, you know, their ground tests have been successful. And unfortunately, in the space industry, having work on the ground is not the same as working in space. And until they, you know finally launch and can finally prove themselves there's still a lot of unknowns and those unknowns directly map to risk when you're especially when you're planning these multi-million even multi-billion dollar space missions yeah speaking of um you know spending 20 years doing this uh tj you were telling me about uh what was it was it ignition where the guy was talking about the early days of uh Mm -hmm. space development where he would do all these chemical reactions by hand the book Ignition, uh, An Informal History of Liquid Rocket Propellants by John D. Clark is fantastic. Uh, the ebook is $43 on Amazon. A hardcover copy is $700 on Amazon. Oh my god. Uh, I was able to read a hard copy through our university library. It was worth it. Not $700 worth it, but for free it was worth it. Uh, uh, but no, this is a really great book because he was actively involved in the post-war II development of rocket fuels. And, you know, he knows the people that developed hydrogen-based propellants that could be used in nuclear missiles and other missiles. And so, you know, there's a lot of interesting stuff there of the dangers of testing these hypergolic substances where they will react spontaneously and explode spontaneously on contact with anything. Um, and there's a lot of great anecdotes there. So. I would highly encourage you to check out the ebook or uh, just Google around and find it because it's free. It's the first result on Google. But anyways, it's a great book. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time for another discussion on space exploration, science, and technology. As always, we'd love to hear your thoughts and questions for this episode. You can also suggest new topics like this one on Twitter at RIT Specs and by email at specscast at gmail.com. You can learn more about RIT Space Exploration and SpexCast at specs.rit.edu. Our music is by Nelson Scott. Find more at his website, thenelsonscott.com.